grace works. It's great to hear stories of the grace of the Lord working in our midst, and there's a lot of that going on, and that's a wonderful, 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 wonderful treat, and uh, what a great song that Emma sang, Worship Time. You know, I was, I was actually at a church uh, when I was much younger in Atlanta, and it was a service similar like this where people were sharing things, and the music was wonderful, and, and you could sort of feel things going on in the church, and the pastor got up and said, I just feel things are moving here. I just feel things are moving. And people would, after every sentence, he'd say, people would say, amen. I feel things moving. Amen. And I feel because things are moving so much. Amen. I feel things are moving so much that I'm not going to preach this morning. And people went, amen. (laughs) You're not going to be that fortunate though. (laughs) Um, Chris mentioned the new, the uh, uh, elders election uh, take that seriously. Uh, the cards for nominating elders you can pick up at the information uh, booth out there. So that's where these cards are. And also want to call attention. These are for those of you who have been attending Grace of Anne for a while, or maybe you're are brand new to Grace of Anne and you want to learn more about our church and what, what all's going on here and how things work. I would encourage you, look in your bulletin, notice that next Sunday at 345, there's a new members class. Um, you're invited. It's here. It's going to be in the right out there in the foyer. Uh, let me encourage you, if you want to learn more about the church or you would like to join the church, one of the things we ask you to do is attend a new members class, and that will be, that will be next week. So uh, make a note of that. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, uh, verse 7. There's a lot of good, lot of good stuff in there. As, as you're turning, I don't know if you knew this, I just became aware that there was a holiday last week. Did you know that last Thursday was National Bosses Day? You might have known that. Maybe you're a boss and your, your employees look forward to that day every year so they can take you out and they can uh, uh, set it aside to honor what a wonderful boss that they have. You know, bosses are powerful in the lives of of many people. They can be. They can, uh, they're important because they can empower you. A boss can can encourage you, they can support you, they can make you feel worthwhile. Also, they, if they're not good, they can lead you into depression. There's a lot of research that says the number one pe- reason that people leave their jobs is because of a bad boss. What about your boss? Do you have a good boss? Do you get along with your boss? Think about that. And think about this. You know, We've got a lot of bosses in our lives. In fact, we have as many bosses as we allow. Who are they to you? Uh, Who do you allow or what do you allow to have authority in your lives? I mean, the Bible tells us that there are uh, different organizations or people that we need to give authority to, that God tells us, for instance, that that, uh, he puts uh, bosses in our lives where we work, I uh, refers to the government has authority over us. Uh, parents have authority in their family. Husbands even have authority in their, uh, in their family, even more so. And even in this elder election, elders are charged to have spiritual authority in the lives of all the members. And they're put there by God. But what about other bosses? What about, what about those people or those ideas or those idols that sometimes we're tempted to give authority and to give 
priority to. Think about that. Think about those places where we tend to seek, uh, whatever you want to call it, identity or, or meaning or, or value. You know, maybe, maybe it's in having a great job or maybe it's in having a, a perfect marriage or, or maybe it's having a, uh, children who are, who are so spit and polished that they're just absolutely perfect. Maybe it's a certain look that we want. Maybe it's the, the, the right that we feel we have to certain leisure pursuits that might even divide our passion. Maybe an authority we have in our lives is that we like to please people so that everybody becomes our boss. But the point is this. There are many bosses out there and some are good and some are not. Some are true bosses and some are lies that we have allowed to have authority in our lives. Are you comfortable with the bosses in your lives? Now, why do I, why do I talk about this? It's because our text today, in fact, the whole book of Revelation talks about a boss. It talks about an authority figure, someone with power and someone with rights. And you know who it talks about. It talks about the author. It talks about Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people all over the world have opinions about who Jesus is and what this Jewish carpenter was, you know, that he is such a wonderful teacher or that he is such a good moral person. He is a man more than anyone else who showed us how to love and and how to be kind. And he gave his life as a pattern for us to live and to love sacrificially. And we should be more like Jesus. That's what a lot of people think about him on the good days. And I don't disagree with that. It's wonderful. But here's where we get into trouble. Because here's where Jesus got into trouble. The life he led, the miracles he performed, his death on the cross, his resurrection, the words he spoke, he claimed to be more than just a good teacher, more than someone who ethically shows us how to live. He claimed and he demonstrated divine authority, supreme authority. In fact, he claimed to be God. And many people back in that day, as you know, don't like that. They didn't like it then, and there's many people that don't like that now. But but really, the central issue is this. Is Jesus who he claims to be? Because if he is, we need to ask, reflecting upon every area of our lives, is he my boss? Now, whenever you study scripture, whether it's preparing for a sermon or whether it's in your personal Bible study, we are reminded that scripture is what? It's the living word of God. And since it's from God, we hold the position rightfully that it must be authoritative. It's not man's word about God, but scripture is God's word to man. And when you study it, you want to ask yourself questions. You want to ask yourself, what is this passage that I'm reading saying about God? What is it saying maybe about Jesus Christ? What is it saying about me? What's it saying about my relationship with Jesus? Is there anything that I need to think about? Is there any attitudes that I need to ask him to change in my life? Is there anything that I need to do? So we're going to look at the scripture now, and we're going to look at the letter that Jesus dictated to the apostle John to the church in Philadelphia, which was a town in central Turkey. And there's a lot in here. 
And the letter is six verses long, and we don't have time today to go through everything, so we're just going to read up through the ninth verse, but it is rich. And it talks about the authority of Jesus Christ. Here's the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the keys of David, who, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. As the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that lasts forever. So when you come to text, one of the first questions you want to ask is what, the, what is this saying? In this case, what is it saying about Jesus? So let's delve into that a little bit. It says, first of all, that Jesus is holy and true. Remember, Jesus is, is, is dictating this letter to the apostle John. And after he has dictated this entire book, the apostle John got probably a group of folks, at least seven men, and they took these letters that were specifically dictated to these churches, along with the whole book of Revelation, and they left them there, and then they moved to the next church, the next church, and the next church. And Jesus is saying that he is holy and true. In other words, that he is separate, that he is unlike anything or anyone else. He's saying that he is perfect, holy. He is true. In other words, he is authentic. In other words, he is original. He is right. He is one of a kind. He is correct. He is true, and the things that he says is true. Now, what's interesting is that holiness used this way is reserved for God alone. One commentator described holiness as moral majesty, meaning that Jesus is in a a class by himself. He is different. He is unique. There is no other. He is divinely distinct. And since he is true, that means he's not a mirage. He's not just a belief. He's not something that becomes true if you believe it to make it true. It's not just, he's not just a whoosh. He is true. Now that means whatever he says is absolutely true. Whatever he says about himself, whatever he says about life, whatever he says about his people or people in general, it's true. The fact that Jesus is true means that he is, he is dependable and that he is faithful, that he can be counted on. Now, this church to whom he is writing was a small church. It wasn't a church of a lot of reputation. uh, It's described as a church with just a little power, not much worldly influence. And this church was being slandered. It was being persecuted by uh, what, what he is calling false Jews. In other words, Jews that were, were, were going through the motions, that were holding on to the rituals that they were going through, and they, they weren't Jews of the heart, Jews that, that, that shared in what, what Abraham shared and what David shared and what the prophets shared. And he's saying that, that, that these uh, uh, false Jews were slandering them. Now, many early on, many uh, Christians who originally had been Jews would continue to go to the synagogue. And then they would go to their church service. And when they would come to the synagogue, they were ridiculed and they were persecuted and they were slandered. They were called, you know, you're not the true people of God. You're just a bunch of fools. 
You know, you, you, you're, you don't have it right. We're the ones that have it right. And Jesus called this the synagogue of Satan. Now, why would he say that? Why would he call it the synagogue of Satan? Well, you know why? It's because Satan is the father of lies. Satan tries to pass lies as truth. Satan tries to be the boss and claim that what he says is true, but he's really passing lies. And that started way back at this historical event called the Garden of Eden when Eve is there and Satan comes to Eve as a serpent and he says, you see that tree over there? That's a tree, the the tree of life. That means if you eat of that tree, you will have life as it's supposed to be, even though God told you not to eat from that tree. And the reason he said that was because if you eat from that tree, you will be like God. You will have the authority like God has, and you'll be able to see what life is really like. So Eve, as we know, ate of it. She became in charge. Satan convinced her to... to, uh, abandon the, the veracity, the truthfulness of the word of God in order to believe this lie as truth. And look at what's happened. Look at what's happened. Romans 1 talks about it. It talks about the state of man now. It says that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship created things rather than rightfully worship the creator. And it's messy. It's messy. Now, look at what happens to uh, the world when people live or believe or give themselves to a lie. I mean, just look at different, look at, look at families, look at marriages. You know, I had a, I had a friend one time who, who was having a struggle in his marriage and he, you know, was actually becoming friends with another woman. And he came to me and he said, doesn't God just want me to be happy? He was believing something that was a lie as truth and it wrecked his family. Or personally, drugs or addictions or, 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 or uh, uh, relationships that we try to get something out of. We believe it is true, but it's a lie. Success, our view of success. I remember back when I was in high school when the water grate stuff was going on, and I'll never forget, I don't think he made this quote up, but I'll never forget the quote that one of uh, Nixon's minions said, who had risen up into the inner circle of the White House. His name was Jeb Magruder. And he said, I've, after he was convicted in the Watergate scandal, he said that I've spent my entire life climbing the ladder of success only to find that it's leaning against the wrong wall. He had bought into a lie for success. Or what if people buy into it? Look at the impact globally. False religions. When groups of people buy into a lie. I can spell it out. I-S-I-S. Lies influence culture. And you know something? I wonder, even as believers, if we get caught up to listening to those things that our world values or or where we go through periods where we see that we're lacking, where we, we, we're measuring ourselves by standards that don't last and we feel like we come up short and we're anxious or we're guilty. And it feels like we're chasing this phantom of a person that we should be but doesn't really even exist. Preachers aren't immune from that either. 
You know, preachers can say, boy, if I just had this congregation, if I just had that congregation, or if I could have a building like, like my friend the preacher has, or, or if, I could have a, if I could have a voice like, you know, if I could preach like Billy Graham, you know, your friends will wait. The buses will wait. Then maybe I would be, boy, then I would have it. If only then I. You know, I can go on and on and on. The respect of my peers. I'll feel good about myself. They're lies. And those lies can condemn us. And I wonder if sometimes we are more condemning of ourselves than even Jesus Christ is of us. Now, of course, if we're disobedient, of course, if we're doing something that we shouldn't do, then we need to repent. We need to change our mind about that. We need to ask the Lord to help us. But Jesus is holy and true. In Romans 8, 1 says this. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He is the only one who is holy and true. So what he's doing is he's encouraging these believers in this little church in Philadelphia. And by the same token, he's encouraging us. And the point of it is this, that Jesus is true. He is the way and the truth and the life. That means whatever he says is true, whatever he says about us is right and is accurate And it is true. And in this passage, he is encouraging these folks in the church in Philadelphia. He's saying, don't listen to those lies. And he's saying to us, don't don't buy in and make the lies of the culture our boss. Don't hang your hat on that hook. Don't shape yourself by them. Because eventually those attempts at condemnation, you'll see that they're just lies. And specifically, what he's saying to this church, he says, look, I am absolutely holy, and I put a premium on truth, and in my holiness and in my truth, I have scrutinized you, little church, and I can tell you this, you're doing well, you're doing right, you're to be commended, way to go. He's saying, I know you're being persecuted, but I want you to know that I am for you. I know you're going through trials. I know you're going through difficulty. I know that you're in the minority, but you're really not because you have me. And I think sometimes even in the middle of a sermon, it's a good thing to stop and ask yourself, is ourselves, is the Holy Spirit pricking me right now? Is he telling me, man, don't value that lie. Don't buy into what that culture says. Don't let that lie that you're so tempted to do to order your life, don't value it as truth. Instead, look to the Holy One. Look to Jesus because his word is truth. You know, perhaps what these uh, courageous believers in Philadelphia knew is that very fact that Jesus is holy and he is real and he is true. And that hasn't changed. Even when the world around them was trying to convince them otherwise, they knew that it was the culture around them that was mired in the lie because truth is found in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. He is holy and true. If that's the case, then what he says about the world and what he he says about the way things are, that just might be true as well. So the first 
idea, the first fact that we learn about Jesus is that he is holy and true, meaning he is faithful. And he can be counted on even when we don't understand what's going on. Or even when we question in the short term why God sometimes does what he does. He is holy and true. He says something else. Look back at that verse, uh, verse 7. He says, he, is, he who is true, he who is holy, he who has, and he says, the key of David. Jesus says, I hold the key of David. Now, what, what in the world might he be referring to? What is he talking about? You know, well, let's say that someone, someone comes to you, you know, you're, it's early in the morning, and you hear a knock on your door, and you're, you're going to the door in your bathrobe and, or whatever, and you don't have your face on, or the, for guys, the stuff's not combed out of our hair or off the top of our head. And, and the door opens and here are these bright lights and here's this uh, TV cameras and everything. And here comes a guy with a microphone. He sticks it in your face. And he says, you have won a million dollars. And that million dollars is kept in a safe, secure, just for you. Well, who has the power and the authority and the control over that million dollars to make it beneficial to you? It's the one who holds the key to the safe. The one who has the authority and the power. Jesus is the one that holds the key. So that key is a symbol of authority. It's a symbol of power. It's a symbol of control. Let me give you a little background so that you'll understand it a little bit better. You don't have to turn to it, but over in Isaiah 22, we read the story. There's a man named Shebna. And Shebna was, the, was like the chief of staff in the palace of the king. And the prophet Isaiah made the statement that Shebna would be replaced by the Lord with a man named Eliakim. And of Eliakim, he says this. He said that the Lord would place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. So Eliakim, in other words, would be sort of like the gatekeeper with the power to control entry into the very presence of the king. Entry, he could determine who would go in and who would not go in to the royal kingdom. And so as the king's steward, in effect, the one, because he held the key, he was the one that determined who would be able to go before the king and receive the blessings of the king and who would not be able to have access to the king. So this key that's talked about here that Jesus holds is a symbol of kingdom power and control, of kingdom sovereignty. And the key of David had originally been given to the people of God, but this passage tells us um, that, that that's Israel in the time of David. But what this is saying is that that key, that authority, that control has been transferred to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And now whatever he opens, no one can shut. And whatever he shuts, no one can open. So this key is a symbol of power and divine authority and sovereignty. This key represents the symbol, which is the secret of our success. So Jesus is holy and true. Jesus uh, holds the key to the kingdom, the key of David. 
And then it says something else, something else. He is the one who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one's open. So he's talking about this open door. Later he says, you know, a couple of lines later he says, and I, I have a door open for you, little church in Philadelphia, and nobody can shut that door. What's he talking about? What is this open door? Well, I think it's referring to two things. I think it's kind of like a swing, swinging door. Uh, you, you go in and you come out. What we go into is the very presence of God. We go into the throne room of blessing. It's a door of the presence of God and Jesus holds the key. It's a key to the door of all that God has to offer. A key to the door that offers a a relationship with the living God of the universe who is the source of every good gift according to James chapter 1. So what he seems to be saying to the church and what he seems to be saying to each of us and to everyone, no matter who we are, who responds to the gospel is that I am the one who opens doors and shuts doors and I've given you an open door. Now come into the very presence of God. I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. So it's a door into the very presence of God. What a, what a wonderful truth. What an amazing opportunity he gives to everyone that responds to the gospel because it's reserved for believers. But I think he's saying something else. <clears throat> this door that he opens and no one can shut and that he shuts and no one can open, I think it's a door for ministry. It's a door for opportunity. It's a door to go out and to make a difference with our faith. It's a door to witness. You know what witnessing is? It's telling, showing and telling the world just exactly who is boss. It means that Jesus is opening and closing doors and always has all over the world. And if you read history, history of revivals, histories of the movement of the gospel, you'll see that in certain times in history, God was working in certain parts of the world and then and he might not be working in the same way now. Instead, he's working somewhere else. The Lord is moving across the world. You know, maybe a couple of hundred years ago, he is working in North America or working in, in New England. Doesn't mean he's not working now, but, but you can look at other parts of the world like Africa or like Latin America and you can see great, or in China, you can see wonderful things because those doors are open. But it's not just all over the world where the Lord is opening and closing doors. It's doors of opportunity in our very sphere of influence. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that take the pressure off of us? You see, because as a church, when it comes to the gospel and you're praying for people to come to know the Lord, or you're wanting to have an impact in a person's life, ultimately, our success depends on something that we cannot do. We cannot save anybody. We cannot cause a person's heart to change. All that we can do is faithfully go through that open door and trust the Lord to do the work. The, 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 the role that we have is faithfulness. The role that the Lord has, the success, are changed lives. That's what witness means. We have open doors in our sphere of influence. And what he's telling this little church, this, this persecuted church, this small church of little power, he said, 
I have given you an opportunity for ministry in this town of Philadelphia. I have given you an open, you little church without any, just a little bit of power. I have given you an opportunity and you are faithfully taking advantage of that opportunity. It's interesting that the the town of Philadelphia was founded by the Greeks so they could be like an embassy to promote and spread Greek intellect and culture. And yet here the Lord is saying, little church, you are my embassy. You are my ambassadors. What an encouragement. You little insignificant church, I've given you an open door. I've given you an open door. This is consistent with what the Apostle Paul says. He's writing to the Corinthians. He says, I'm in Ephesus now, and I've been given an open door for ministry, so I'm going to stay a while in spite of a lot of persecution. Or you can read in Ephesians 2.10. We know what Ephesians 2.8.9 say. That's the verse that says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. We're familiar with that verse. But right after that, it says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do those good works that he has already prepared for us to walk in. Open doors, opportunities. We have some, uh, I don't know, they're friends, even though we haven't really gotten to know them, but about 30 years ago, we met two sisters, Vali and Maji, Afkar. They're from Iran, and they're missionaries, They've been missionaries ever since we've gotten to know them. And we get letters from them twice a year. They have to be careful what they say because they're ministering in the Middle East. And we'll hear stories uh, of what was going on in their lives when during the fall of uh, Saddam and, and what's going on now when they're over in Syria or over in Jerusalem or the things that are happening now. You know, and in their letters, they don't ever pray, oh, keep us from hardship. Don't ever ask us to pray for, keep us from temptation, keep us from difficulties, keep us from the strain of life. You know what they ask for? Most often they ask for open doors for ministry. And they share all the wonderful things that the Lord is doing in their lives when they're in these secret places in the Middle East. Pray for open doors, that's what they ask. And he does it, because that's the way he is. So, We want to keep our antennas up. We want to look for those open doors. I I don't know what to say, or or I don't don't know if if I can. I don't feel like it. I only have a little power. I'm not strong enough. Not strong enough to succeed. But our success, these opportunities and these open doors, are in the hands of the Lord. I didn't make this quote up, but it preaches really, really well. It's not about your ability, it's about your availability. That's kind of what Jesus is saying to us and to this little church in this passage. But there's one other thing. I want to call your attention to verse 8. He's talking about, he says, I know your works, and he's talking about these open doors, and he says, I set before you an open door that no one should, can, can shut. So there, there's a, he's talking about how he opens and closes doors opportunities for ministry, opportunities to come into the presence of God. That's a fact. That's a reality because he is holy and true that we can hold on to. But then he gets specific. He says, I have set before you an open door. This is, this is fascinating. What is that open door that he's talking about? 
This is a promise to this little church. It's a promise for all churches. He tells them that there's something specific that he's going to do with them and for them and in them and through them relating to open doors. And here's what he says. He says, I know your works. He knows their works. What's he referring to? Well, he's saying that in spite of this persecution, in spite of the fact that they just have a little, a little strength, he says, you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. In other words, he's saying, I know your deeds and you are faithful and true. That's all we can be. It's not about ability, it's about availability. And sure, there's risk. There's always risk in faith. There's always risk in love. There's just risk in life. Now, now catch this. Look at this passage. He's already told us that he is holy and that he is true and that he holds the keys of David. He is the sovereign authority. He's already said that he opens doors and closes doors at his good pleasure. We're not the ones that open the doors. We're the ones that seek those doors and walk through them when we find them open. And now he says to this little church who's been a faithful embassy, faithful ambassadors to this community, he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you a promise. And he tells them just what that open door is going to look like. He says, indeed, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. A specific promise that he has made available to that church through the working of Christ and through the faithful witness of this little church, the very ones who are persecuting them will eventually come and worship with them in their lifetime, will come and worship with them and share the same love that Christ has for them. That's something that only the Lord can do. And what was true then is true now. Because he who calls you is faithful and he will bring it to pass. And you see, because Jesus is holy and true, because Jesus holds the keys of the kingdom, because he is the one who opens and shuts doors, we can rest assured sure that whatever God desires of us, Jesus will accomplish. We want to be keeping his word and being faithful to his name. This is a small church, church of little power, little strength, no large buildings, no great programs, no community involvement perhaps, no great budget. But here's the thing. A church is not measured by the size of its roles or the size of its budget, but the size of their Savior who faithfully Patient, who they faithfully and patiently honor and proclaim. Because he is the boss. A few years ago, there was a movie, you might have seen it, it's called Million Dollar Baby. That was a great movie. I think, I think uh, uh, Hillary Swank won an Academy Award. Clint Eastwood's in the movie. But it's about a woman who's a boxer and it's really difficult for her to make money. And yet eventually she got so good and worked very hard and began to make money. And she always wanted to give money uh, to her mother. She always wanted to 
uh, do something for her mom, to earn her love and to earn her, her respect and to be appreciated by, by her mother. And so after working hard and after making money, she called up her mom, said, we're coming over, and she came over there. And, and, and her mom was poor. Her mom was on welfare. She came over, took her mom and sister, picked them up, and took them over to a house and said, Mom, here are the keys. I have bought this house for you. What a wonderful thing. Well, if you saw the movie, her mom didn't like that. Her mom went off on her. She yelled at her. She called her stupid. She asked why she couldn't just just have given her the money. She said, oh, you bought me this house. Now it's going to ruin my welfare. You've just messed up. You always messed up. And you've just messed up again. It was a devastating scene because everything that uh, she had done to earn the, the favor and to please her mother just, just didn't work. She gave all she had and she failed. Well, she got back in the car to drive home. And as they were driving in silence, it was dark and the rain was pelting the car and, and, and they drove along and finally the silence was broken. And with a voice with some despair, she turns over to her trainer, Clint Eastwood, and says, Boss, I got nobody but you. I got nobody but you. And Clint Eastwood looked over and said, but you got me. You got me. Maybe that's what Jesus is saying here. Maybe we have no one but him. Yet that's enough. Because he is faithful and he is holy and he is sovereign and he is true and he is the one that opens doors and he is the one that shuts doors and he will never, ever leave us because he is true and he made that promise. He is like no one that we've ever met. He can be trusted. He will never let us down. He is the true one, the faithful one. And we got him and he's got us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful truth that we have a Savior in whom we can fully trust. Lord, may we rest in him. May we acknowledge that the success of all that we do here rests and relies upon him, but cause us to be faithful that we might find those doors and walk through them, doors into the pre- your presence and doors in ministry. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.